listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. particularly uh, cool because I got to share it with the person that gave me life. Um, she had some help, I've heard. But, uh, but um, it, was, it was particularly neat to go through this ceremony, which I, I struggle with. Just, I struggle with ceremonies. Um, I know that sounds maybe funny, but especially, you know, sitting in this, in this chair or this cushion, sitting on this cushion, I've always found that the forms and ceremonies, the rituals and so forth, uh, for me, were always kind of, eh, why are we doing this? And I was reminded as a monk how the various forms and ceremonies, the way we do things, remind us of how even the simplest act can be holy. And I was reminded this again this, this past weekend when I went through uh, a, a doctoral pudding ceremony and uh, commencement the following day where I was reminded of, okay, this is a very formal recognition of what you and everybody that has helped you, and that includes all of you, everybody that has helped you has gone through and in, uh, I mean, it wasn't something, I mean, I felt, thank you, for the, thank you for the doctoral hood. Thank you for the letters after my name. But it wasn't something that I did as much as I did with so much help. So much help. So much support. External. And then on the internal, I know for me that the, the most important thing uh, was that for me was... I wanted my daughters to see this. I wanted my daughters to recognize this is what hard work means and this is what it does. And when you were busy reading and I was busy reading or researching, we did that together. And together we came up with this. I wanted them to be able to, now whether that would go through their head or not, I mean, for all I know, like, hey, cool robe, you know, nice, nice octagonal hat, dude. Um, <laughs> That may very well be the, you know, the, the, the sum total of their experience in relationship to this graduation. But it was interesting for me to consider, this isn't really my graduation. This is a graduation. This is an evolutionary step for a whole assortment of people who have worked very hard to get me here. And um, so I felt very, it, it felt like a very um, powerful reminder of how the ceremony and ritual itself made the experience holy, but the holiness was about the WH or holy, this whole experience that kind of carried through. Um, not a lot of, not a lot of I there, although it's it's very seductive. I did this, you know. <laughs> you know uh, that's 
that I think that and I'm, that, that's not false modesty. That's just, just you know, you, you, you kind of start looking at all the things that conspire together to, to allow for something like this to happen. Now, the debt, on the other hand, is all mine. Um, <laughs> but uh, we'll figure that one out over time. Um, anyway, it was, it was quite remarkable. And among the things I found most remarkable was the, um, the commencement speech given by the author of the, uh, the Emperor of All Maladies, I believe is the title, uh, Siddhartha Mukherjee, um, Dr. Siddhartha Mukherjee, I think he wrote, he got the Pulitzer, I believe, for this biography of cancer. And it was so interesting listening to his, the, the basic thrust of his 12 minutes of brilliance up there behind the microphone was the most important thing we can do for each other. It's going to sound pretty familiar. The most important thing we can do for each other is listen. That as a physician, the most important thing he can do is listen. That the curatives and so forth uh, begin to reveal themselves through a deep openness. And I remember sitting there going, uh-huh. Uh-huh. You know, very, very much how this practice, in my view, uh, begins to unfold. Are you available? Because you can't be available unless you're listening. There's a tendency for us to want to move there's a tendency for us to want to show how clever we are or how much we know or how much, you know. And I was re reminded how that creativity on the part of the mind is such a beautiful thing on the one hand, but this is not a practice of creation. This is a practice of recognition. This is not a practice of creation. This is a practice of recognition. No matter how much I egoically might like to think, I did this. Really, it was an interdependent, temporal relationship that studied deeply enough goes <clears throat> right into the essence of spirit. That it becomes revelatory rather than something that is built. You don't build peace. You don't build peace. Peace is there and revealed when the causes and conditions are just right. And we allow for those causes and conditions to, to arise and cease. We allow. We don't build. We begin to recognize in this process that an awakened awareness or awakening itself is lost the minute we start actively seeking it. It's not something that is sought. We don't chase after it. We stop chasing. We stop Looking outside, we begin recognizing this deep internality. And in that process, revelation happens. We start seeing that this is no longer 
what we might have thought was a process of creation, but rather a process of recognition. No matter what it is, no matter if you're getting extra letters at the end of your name, or you're, you're engaging in some big effort, some creative enterprise, whatever it is, it's something that co-mingles, is co-created. And as we say in uh, Buddhism, it dependently co-arises with an assortment of other things. Dependently co-arises. I want to be careful with that phrase because a lot of people mistake that for a codependency. Now, codependency, as we use it in typical psychological parlance, means somebody is going through something that is destructive and we help them out. They're in a dependency situation and we support that dependency by keeping them dependent, by allowing for the process of unconsciousness that leads to that to continue. What I'm talking about is something that's very different. Dependent co-origination means that everything works with everything else to allow for causes and conditions to arise that allow for those among us that are open to receive and engage in a process of generosity and peace. Generosity and peace. That's where we, that's where we land in this work. We land as physical manifestations of generosity and peace. When we're doing it right. When we're doing it wrong, we think we are enlightened. When it becomes egoically driven, we think thoughts like, oh, I get it. It's mine. I did this. Well, you were a participant. You were a participant in it. But it wasn't all you. Did you have fresh air? Did you have water? Did you have family? Did you have drive? What inspired that drive? We begin to tease apart our experience at a really, really deep level. And we begin to see this isn't a process of creation, but rather this is a process of recognition. So my hope tonight as we, as we sit is that we're able to recognize our moment. We begin to recognize what's happening. We recognize how it is that we're feeling. We recognize the story that's going through our head. We recognize. We, we're not creating anything. We're not even creating necessarily the environment for this to unfold. We are co creating it with everything else. But it's taken out of our hands. In Christianity, I always think of this as uh, the let go and let God uh, uh, idea. Um, this is where we, we literally we surrender to what is happening and watch how that surrender can inform action, can inform a different kind of engagement where we are, instead of Creating, we are seeing what is revealed. We are recognizing. 
and at our best, we begin to sit still, we begin to sit as peace, and thus peace is recognized. We don't create peace. Peace is not something that is built. Peace is something that we fall into. As the teacher Samuel Bonder says, I love this, he says, we fall awake. Instead of falling asleep, we fall awake. We literally open into peace. So for the next 30 or so minutes, what we're going to try to do is just open. Just be the peace we wish to see. Be that peace that you wish to be revealed. You don't have to create anything. You just have to be quiet. Really quiet. Sit still. Don't move, in other words. That's hard for a lot of us. Don't move. Don't talk. Just be that peace for 30 or so minutes and watch what happens. And if you find that's elusive, it's, it's escaping and you find yourself find the mind moving, which is its job, just come back to your breath. Let's see, was that an inhale or exhale? In, inhale, exhale, that's one. I'm gonna to count to 10 of these. Inhale, exhale, that's two. Just come back to that breath. Let that be your weightless anchor that helps guide a process of stillness and peace. Let that recognition, rather than that creation, guide you. Fully occupy our seats. Do our best to be upright in the face of it all. And instead of a slouch, we're in a place of deep participation. That our hearts are open, our shoulders as best we can, our back, and that we are ready to receive whatever shows up. That the soft heart and the soft mind ready for anything. So I wanted to make sure that something that's been going on through my head all day and I felt it was probably important that I share it as kind of a guidepost. 
awareness does not break reality up into pieces. Mind does that. Awareness does not break reality up into pieces. And awareness is just aware of what's happened. Okay? I'm aware that my eggs were burned. I'm aware that um, uh, uh, I'm feeling protective over someone. I'm aware, right? It's aware. But the mind is what determines, okay, I should be protective. Or these eggs are burned, therefore unpalatable, or whatever it is, right? So what we're trying to do in this work is to back out, or in Zen we say take the backward step and become aware of how the mind is carving up reality. Now, this isn't a bad thing. This is the mind's job. But what we're trying to do is liberate ourselves from living in what we might call an unbalanced way. Instead of being able to take awareness with mind, we instead just basically deal with mind. And in so doing, we live lives of what we call, in many spiritual traditions, delusion or something along those lines. Now, the mind, or ego, hates hearing that it's deluded because it thinks... I'm complete. This is the whole story. When in fact, it is the whole story for itself. But there's something bigger, something more expansive that can view what it's doing. It's a deeper subject that can take the mind as an object. And that's every bit of this tradition, every bit of actually most contemplative non-dual traditions go right in that direction. Now, the mistake that can be made, and most people are always asking the question, you know, well, if, uh, if spirit is all there is, how come I don't notice it? Or if, if uh, you know, the awakened mind is all there is, how come I, I, don't, I don't notice it? Well, actually, it's not something that is, it's not something we create. It's something that we can't escape. It's what's always there. And so this work is about, sometimes I call it uh, sweeping the, the lampshade. Every time we sit still, every time we meditate, it's like we take one swipe at a very dusty lampshade. But over time, with enough swipes, that light begins, begins to radiate through. Do we create that, radi- that radiance? No. We let it out. We start recognizing that awareness does not specify where that radiance should or should not go. Mine does. Ah, this is life, but this is not. This is this is good. This is bad. This is we're freed of this binary uh, existence. We can do more. Now to go uh, neurobiological on everybody, they're uncovering that there's the default midbrain mode, or is, is actually what they what they what they call it, the default midbrain. It's a substructure in the brain that is actually kind of activated um, as we meditate. And there are a couple things that some of the contemporary research has revealed that I think is really kind of fascinating. Number one, 
meditators tend to shrink another substructure called the amygdala. And the amygdala, for those of you who are keeping score at home, is what does uh, all the emotional stuff that we're into. So if, if you know of somebody who's incredibly emotional or can fly off the handle pretty quickly, chances are they got a big amygdala. Now, I recommend you not go tell them this. <laughs> because it probably won't help and will merely increase the size of their amygdala. <laughs> uh, and also, probably not a good idea to say, hey, you got one big amygdala. That's not going to help either. Because <laughs> you can't see it and you can't prove it without killing them. Which would mean if you did that, you'd probably have a huge amygdala too. So. I have no idea where I'm going to erase this whole section of the podcast. <laughs> but the default midbrain uh, allows for a deeper internality. So it allows for us to, instead of you know, be concerned so much of the time with self and other, it's self in. It's going in. And boy, this is kind of a new experience for most people. Is it creation? It's recognition. That awareness of that backward step or that internality. The awareness of that is not carving that reality up into anything. It's just being aware of it. And that's where we're moving. That's, an, uh, uh, that's a step into creating that balance between inside-outside. And we start recognizing that all of our suffering, uh, to paraphrase Krishnamurti, is because we believe in something out there versus something in here. As opposed to, as Kierkegaard has said, the stars out there are, paraphrased of course, equal to the stars in here. That balance of reality, external and internal, becomes incredibly instructive as we move through our day. We start recognizing that when we spend all of our time looking outward to see how we're doing or defending ourselves in, in the mind-built bunker that so many of us move through the world in this egoic fortress, we start seeing this contracted life actually gives way to a very open life should we be able to go inside deeply enough? And the stillness practice supports this automatically, spontaneously. There's nothing we have to do. We don't have to build. We don't have to create. We just have to recognize. Recognize what a stillness practice does for us. And most people, if they do it long enough, begin to see this. They begin to recognize, huh, something's going, something's going okay. I will say in my research, so much of what was revealed was, God, we don't know exactly what's going on, but something's happening. This is always a really cool anecdotal bit of evidence. Now, of course, as an academic, you're always looking for the data. And if you don't have anything except anecdotal data, you pretty much have to throw it away. But something's going on. And most of us in this room who have been sitting long enough recognize something's kind of shifting, something's kind of kind of moving. My recommendation is let 
any academic need you may have on your part, flow away. Just rest in the fact that yes, something is probably going on. Maybe your amygdala is shrinking. Maybe your default midbrain is doing some cool stuff allowing for a deeper internality. Does it really matter? No. Fact is, this process allows for us to typically create that balance between inside and outside. Similarly, we create a balance between our perception of other, outside, and self, inside. They start to lose their meaning in a little bit of, uh, uh, you know, in some really interesting ways. Other, self, actually we are all in one big dance. It's all in this awareness, therefore it is all within me. We start seeing that the entire universe arises within our awareness. If it arises within our awareness, it rises within us. It therefore is not separate. And this is literally mind-boggling, which is the point. If you can boggle the mind, you can tend to shut it up. And if you can shut it up, you can see what's on the other side of it. What's watching this boggled mind? What is that awareness? Because that awareness is not interested in dividing anything up. It's not interested in carving up the reality that the mind starts talking about. It's just aware. And if this is getting too highfalutin, too intellectual, all you got to really recognize is Recognize. You don't have to create. Just recognize. <laughs> Sit still. Be quiet. Watch. This takes us from a contracted life into an open life. Or as sometimes I talk about circumstantial living into ultimate living. And ultimate living is balanced. Ultimate living is undivided. Ultimate living offers us a deeper, more emphatic empathy for self and other. And oddly, <laughs> the mind gets really frustrated. <laughs> the mind, it's a cruel joke. Cruel joke to the ego because the ego can't, or the mind can't, and I'll use them interchangeably. The mind cannot play at that level the way it always has. People who have IQs above 120 also get really frustrated at this point because they've been able to figure everything out pretty much. Particularly high IQs, they really get frustrated because, my golly, this is the great gift I've been given, is the figure-out ability, uh, the, this, this chunk of spaghetti I got up here that can figure everything out. This one cannot be figured out. What's recognized not created, but what is recognized, is an awareness that can watch the mind get frustrated. It can watch the ego wrestle with this reality and carve it up into bits, create a binary relationship with everything around it. I like, I don't like, I like it, or actually, uh, uh, I like, I don't like, you know? My mind does that a lot. I guess. Maybe just me. Uh-huh, uh-uh. Yeah, you know, kind of a, it's okay. It's okay. 
I had a boss once who no matter how well things were going, no matter how well things were going, instead of really giving the endorsement, great job, he would always say, that's eh, pretty good. I'm only bringing that up because that was kind of a, an official way of saying, <laughs> it's okay, pretty good. Anyway, when the mind starts recognizing that, that it can't control this, that it can't understand awareness, that awareness is bigger, it gets frustrated and also it gets scared, and a power struggle usually ensues. And so one of the real big reasons that we start out and we ask this question, if spirit is all there is, how come, how come we can't, can't see it? It's because this struggle begins to unfold, and the struggle is from an ego that is hell-bent on making sure it can manage the spiritual experience, that it can build and create all sorts of stuff that will allow it to run the show when, in fact, what is precisely beyond ego, what is precisely beyond the very thing that carves reality into bits and pieces is smiling at the whole charade, the whole show. It's smiling at ego's frustration. It's not mocking it. And if there is mockery going on in your witnessing awareness as it sees ego, if there's mockery going on, it's your ego mocking itself, thinking it's the witness. Bad ego. So it's always going to show up. There's always going to be something kind of scary about this process if ego pursues it from a place of I have to understand, I have to know, because it's coming at it from a place of closure. Unless there's openness in this pursuit of recognition rather than creation, unless there's openness we're going to find ourselves in fear. We're going to find ourselves in, I can't do this. We're going to find ourselves in the grand, cosmic, what the hell type thing. And that can be frustrating. Ego wants to drive this bus. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry about that, ego. <laughs> Actually, that was kind of mocking, wasn't it? So that would technically be ego jumping in. One of the ways, I talked about this a fair amount, but one of the ways we can kind of test this out, you know, how, if you will, where we are in, the, in this map, which, by the way, is not the territory, where are we? Um, look for resistance. Where do you resist? What is it in, in your, uh, how do you get frustrated? Right there, that's the texture of ego. That's ego's skin. You can feel it right there. That's a, that's a boundary that's been set up. Preferences. Watch your preferences. Your preferences, in all cases, will point to attachments. This doesn't mean don't do anything. Engage the world, but engage it from this place of peace. Engage it from a place of recognizing preferences, recognizing attachments. Be unattached as you 
move through your experience. But move through your experience, by all means. Don't become lazy. And then relabel that laziness with, oh, I'm just enlightened. Watch your resistance. That is a key practice. Watch your resistance. Because resistance usually leads to fear. And fear typically leads to anger. And anger always leads to pain. And that pain leads to fear. And the cycle continues. Fear leads to pain, leads to anger, leads to fear, leads to pain, leads to anger, leads to fear. The train leaves the station and it keeps running. And so we are then caught in this anger cycle. And this anger cycle is particularly difficult becomes it, because it becomes a way for us to lie to ourselves and to others. We create false stories or partial stories about how uh, our anger is, is legit. Um, we create these stories that we begin to lean on and rely on. I got into a fabulous uh, discussion with some people relating to critical theory, uh, critical race theory, critical, I mean, critical theory in, in academic circles is really, I, I think, fascinating. But it basically centers around, and it started in law, but it centers around how tools of oppression are used. It might be institutional, it might be education in general, it might be all these things. We look at education as being you know, this great liberating force. I agree, it is. But it can also be used to socialize in ways that might not be appropriate. But what we can do if we're not careful is let our narratives, let our stories about who and what we think we are or who and what we want others to think of us as run the show. And that gets difficult. If I am about my identity as a father or as a boss or as a spiritual leader, or something, if I rely too heavily, I'm just given three roles, there are many. But if I rely too heavily on any of those, I'm in trouble. My maleness, my Scottish heritage, my skin color, my background, my sexual preference. My, you get the idea? We can take this into a very, very interesting place. And it is scary for egos. Because egos need to have story. And this practice leads us beyond the story. Instead of my story, there's a bigger, fatter story that's far more rich. And it's called my humanism. And when I got into this discussion with a group of 
people I'm very, very close with, and there's tremendous trust among us, and we're all of different backgrounds, ethnicities, uh, uh, preferences, and so forth. Uh, it became very edifying to, to recognize that, yes, we all have stories. We all have identities and so forth that we have created. But in the process of recognition as to what's past the story, what's prior to the story, we're all human. We're all spiritual beings having human experiences. The famous Teilhard de Chardin quote, we are human beings, spiritual beings having human experiences rather than human beings. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> We're spiritual beings having human experiences rather than human beings having spiritual experiences. Yeah? That's radical. Radical meaning root, at the root level. We're right at the roots of who and what we are and who and what we are not. That's not creation. That's recognition. And liberation is in that space in that open space. And while I've hit kind of hard tonight, I think it's really important for us to be able to recognize that in each other. Who are we beyond our stories? Are we able to meet our experiences from a place of openness, or is there closure? Where is that closure? Because that closure will show you your resistance. If you can find your resistance, you can find ego's skin. And if you can find ego skin, you can start to recognize how the fear that it experiences relates to pain, relates to anger, relates to... You get the idea. This does not mean stop creating. Go for it. Create. Create a life. But make sure you create that life from a place of recognition. Recognize what's beyond your narratives, whatever they might be. And live from that place consciously, over, over, and over again, moment to moment to moment. Yes, young lady. And how are you, by the way? I'm good, thanks. Good. How does our ego differ from our personality? If we were, if we could achieve the perfect, you know, beliefs from ego, wouldn't we matter the personality less? Until you wanted to put it back into play, it could become conscious. What kind of personality do you have, for instance, when you're in deep, dreamless sleep? How's your personality doing? It's not there, really. You know? When you're in meditation, when you're in deepest meditation, where's your personality? The personality is simply the mask we decorate and festoon and give to the world when we participate. Now, an ego, a person beyond ego, I want to be careful, an egoless person is probably psychotic. So that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about psychosis. We're talking about someone who can consciously choose when and how to employ the separate self-sense 
as they're meeting the world. That's an awakened being. Okay? And that awakened being, guarantee it has personality. In fact, probably really big personality. Divine big, meaning. You know, there's something about them that is, you can, you can feel that candy we call Shakti. You know, you can feel it. All right? So personality, this, this work does not eradicate or diminish personality. It may take off some of the edges that ego has begun to rely on or fall back on more appropriately because they're no longer necessary and they're seen through. And this can be really, really helpful in social circles because you're no longer as annoying. <laughs> teasing you, totally teasing. But you get the idea. You know, I mean, it, it, have you ever, and, and, and I guess what I would use to illustrate this example that I'm kind of crudely throwing your way is, have you ever met somebody who is just too much? Right? Have you ever met somebody who's too little? Right. So this, what this work tends to do is allow for us to very consciously meet our experiences from a place of authenticity. There's no extra decor or no conscious like wiping away of decor. There's just balance in terms of how the world is met. <coughs> Persona, I think, is, is Greek for mask, I think. I'm not sure. It should be, yeah. Let's just pretend. If I'm wrong, it's Latin. <laughs> yeah, it's a... Uh, and so what we do is we begin to take the mask off. This is not my body. <laughs> you know, you become an alien. Did you ever see um, Men in Black? That always cracked me up. That's like, that's the ego. You know, it's a tiny little bug inside of a man suit. <laughs> Anyway, I hope that kind of, that's a horrible image, but still, it's instructive, right? You know, pedagogically it's valid. Um, I, I think that uh, there, is, uh, there is little reason for you to fear <coughs> that you will become, you know, a blob. This is, this is a great example of ego jumping in right now and ascertaining why, you, you know, what I would argue is give it a try. Uh, because ego, ego right now is saying, ah, 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 I'm going to disappear. And it's not, the, and ego, yeah, you, you're, you're not going to disappear. You're going to become a tool. You're no longer going to be able to tool everybody and everything around you the way you want. You're going to become a, 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 uh, uh, an accessory to something that's much, much bigger. And that's where the e-brake just gets pulled on. You know, whoa, time to go to the bar, you know, or whatever it is. Nordstrom, woo you know, right? So I would, I would say that 
everyone in my experience that I felt uh, walked with enlightened feet had plenty of personality to them. It's just that their personality didn't drive squat. Just the Did not drive it. They were not personality driven. They were generosity driven. And personality was along for the ride. Yeah. Welcome. I hope you don't lose your personality in this process. I like your personality. The I, this personality, likes your personality. Right? But what's beyond and prior to both, it's all the same thing. We share that dance. We got time. We got time for some other. Yeah, Mayor. The third eye. The third eye. The eye of intuition. They mm-hmm. say to look up and in. Mm-hmm. Is that basically the same thing? Like in meditation, you're going inward. Is that just like a more... Um, what is that? I have no idea what the third eye is. I have no idea what chakras are. I don't care. Okay. I don't care at all. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great you know, thing that a lot of people are really into. It has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Nothing. Absolutely zero. Now, if techniques and practices along those lines are helpful to you in maintaining or getting into a meditative awareness where you can positively, utterly, and completely get on the other side of them, great. But I think they can be a grand distraction. I think the body, as much as I think it is the vehicle and so forth, we can look so intently at our physical that we lose sight of its counterpoint, which is spiritual. Now, what we're talking about is looking at the body, whether it's the third eye or your left ear lobe, which are equally important, okay? Um, Our work is to be able to see those, is to witness those, to watch those things, not to indulge them, because then we get lost in them. And if we get lost in them, we begin to think they are the key to our awakening. And I would say the key to our awakening is letting go of all that stuff, all of that stuff, including whatever I'm saying. All right? Go, go for it. No, go for it. But, but I just think that... No, I can't do it with my eyes. Because oh, you, do, you do this type of thing? Yeah. yeah. Like I said, I think we can get lost in the... Yeah. Um, it, it's like the... You know, I, I met these uh, sadhus when I was in uh, Nepal that were doing horrific stuff to their bodies as a way of kind of achieving enlightenment. Well, that's one way of doing it, I guess, is self-denying the body... You know, you see those, ever seen those um, uh, representations of the Buddha when he's all skinny? Because he went through this denying the body. If I deny the body enough, I will achieve spiritual. No. No, it's about finding balance. 
And I think the body is a really great way of getting us introduced to spiritual work. But at some point in time, we, we realize that, oh, the body is a tool on this process. It's not an end in and of itself. And so, so I, I, I guess I just get, I don't care how your chakras are spinning. It just does not, it, it, great, fantastic. I'm not mocking it. Great. Your aura's blue today. Fantastic. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with this work. This work is about observing. It's about observing. If you see an aura, great. Are you observing the observer of that aura? Because the blue aura, it means something. Who does it mean? Does it mean something to the awareness? No. It means something to an ego that's writing a story about it. Does that mean it's not important? Well, fine. But it's not, it's, it's, there's more to the work. And we can tend to stop there at what we would call the Sambodhikaya level. We're trying to get to, we're trying to go further. And it's just, like I said, it's not that it's bad. It's just that there's, there's further to travel. I hope that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Sure. Don't cross your eyes. <laughs> I'm stuck. I'm stuck. <laughs> Looking for the third eye. There are no eyes now that work. It'd be a horrible, horrible malady of uh, speaking of. That's the king of all maladies. Is when there's. Great place to stop. Great place to stop. Thanks, Don. And with that, thank you for coming. Are we good? All right. Did everybody, uh, everybody, I just want to throw out a plug. Go Dubs. Thank you very much.